Hey guys, Crunch here with a quick message before the show starts. Michael and I want to encourage all of you to swing over to kickstarter.com and check out the page for TsunamiCon 2015. This is a local independent con happening in Wichita this October. It's three days of gaming, and they have everything. They're covering the gamut from board games and card games to tabletop role-playing games. They'll have some LARPing stuff. They'll have sanctioned tournaments. There's going to be panels. There's going to be musical guests. There's going to be a cosplay contest. They really have everything over at TsunamiCon for this year, 2015. Check them out. Uh, they are in the last two days of funding. They need less than $500 to make TsunamiCon 2015 a reality. If you're in the area, if you are wavering, if you've been on the fence, if you're up for a drive, uh, throw them some coin, buy your tickets, and head down there. There's even some pledge levels if you want to sponsor them, even if you can't go. So check out kickstarter.com for TsunamiCon 2015 and enjoy today's show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a special bonus episode of the RPG Academy. Caleb here, and we have a very special guest in the interview loft, a visiting guest professor, if you will, here in the Academy. I am very happy to have him here with us to have a great little chat about a couple things today. And, uh, sir, if you would be so kind as to introduce yourself to our listeners. <laughs> you bet. My name is, uh, my name is Rich Howard. And uh, I am a columnist over at Tribality.com, and then uh, do a freelance designer as well, doing work for a number of number of different companies. Wonderful. Well, it is so glad to have you here in the interview loft, Rich. Uh, definitely appreciate your time. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, so why don't we talk, before we get into some of the other topics we have prepared for today, why don't we start with a little bit about you? Sure. Um, whenever we have a guest here uh, on the show, uh, we always like to talk about people's uh, gaming backgrounds, yeah. uh, what you did in the industry, what you did at your own table, how you got, uh, how you got hooked in this wonderful hobby that we all share. Absolutely. My story started... Back in 1977, 78, uh, my brother is, uh, he's nine, eight years older than I am. My mom used to make him take me with him to go to his uh, friend Scott's house to, uh, to go play D&D. So I was seven or eight years old and he was 16. So not the top priority on his list to take his eight-year-old brother <laughs> over to his friend's house. Luckily, his friend had this uh, pinball machine that was quarterless, which was enormous back in the day. So I just played that thing for like four hours straight. But eventually, they either I hounded them or something happened. I don't know. Some transition happened. They had me uh, had me sit down at the table and play. And they gave me this... Um, it was a first-level elf wizard back in first edition with... Back when they had one hit point and, you know, there were one-shot magic items for the day. Oh, jeez. So I had one I had one spell. It was a sleep spell. And uh, they were like, all right. So all I remember is just bouncing around in the chair asking if it was time to cast my spell. 
So <laughs> it ends up that they're, they were, I don't even know where they were, what module they were going through, or if it was homebrew, I don't know. But they were kicking doors in, and they kicked this door in, and there was 16 goblins in the room, fully armed. And I'm like, is, it, is that time? Can I cast my spell now? Can I cast my spell? And they were like, yes, this would be great. So um, I remember rolling 2d8s. I rolled the 2d8s. It was like 2 to 16 hit dice of creatures that fall asleep or something. They bounce across the table, off the DM screen, two eights come up, 16, all 16 goblins go to sleep. The guys are hands in the air. They're just loving every minute of it. And I basically was like, I'm playing this game for the rest of my life. I loved it. <laughs> um, it's funny because I went back to read the old first edition rules. I have some old first edition copies, and uh, I guess it was supposed to have been 44s. So, I don't know, maybe they just didn't know the rules at the time, and they just handed me two D8s, and off I went. But the D8 has always been my favorite dice ever since. Well, yeah, with a story like that, jeez. I know, right? <laughs> uh, Chris and Mitch over at the DM's Block were laughing. They're like, well, it's a good thing you didn't roll two ones, because then you probably wouldn't be here today. Exactly. It would have been a totally different story. Completely, yeah. So that got me started. My dad is actually a huge war gamer. Uh, he used to play a Avalon Hill squad leader a lot. Um, he's a big war history buff. My brother played war games with him, but he also played role-playing games. Uh, my dad dabbled a bit. And then I just dabbled a little bit in war games and was all role-playing games. So it kind of was like we had this kind of scaling between from my dad to me on playing. My dad ran a few games with us back in the day. Um, but then when I was uh, about nine, my brother went to the Air Force. So he, about a year or two after that story I just told, he went to the Air Force and was uh, was gone for four years. So the gaming kind of had to come from me. So my dad got me the basic set, basic D&D, old red box, when I was 10, back in 1980. My brother-in-law, he knew I was a big superhero fan. And uh, so he got me this uh, game called the Official Superhero Adventure Game which almost nobody has heard of. It's by a small press designer named Brian Phillips back in the 1980s who lived in Ohio. And um, it was mostly like a tabletop war miniatures superhero game with a bunch of scenarios. But it was this whole universe, like a Marvel or DC rich universe of characters, pre-generated characters. Um, And my friends and I played the crap out of that game. We loved it. And uh, I actually wrote letters, old school, handwritten, 11-year-old letters, 12-year-old letters to uh, Brian Phillips. And he wrote me back, back in the day. And I think that was the moment that kind of pulled the curtain away for me a little bit on things like games. Like realizing, oh, somebody makes this and somebody creates this behind the scenes. And this was a small press thing. And it looks small press. But it was amazing to me. And um, I think that's where the seed got planted that I could do this and make my own games. Now, this was in 1982, so this was not the internet crank-out stuff like we do on Tribality, you know, kind of an era. Like, if you wanted to do this, you had to dump your own money, and you had to find your own publicity, and you had to do all this stuff, and it was really hard to do. I'm a little shocked I got a copy of it in the first place, Um, because I grew up in a small town in Kentucky, and... um, Maybe because he was in Ohio, maybe. The little, the one game store in our town managed to get a copy of his old Ziploc bag, photocopied, you know, hand-stapled kind of game. Um, but uh, I, I remember those characters and those scenarios and those, uh, those storylines as well as I remember any of the Marvel and DC stuff that I grew up with. It was awesome stuff. 
Um, I was lucky enough that recently I got back a hold of him again. Uh, he's not really much on the internet these days, Brian Phillips, but he has a friend who I managed to track down, and he and I have been chatting, and I lost my copy of that game in a flood, including the handwritten letters that I'd gotten from Brian Phillips, which I had kept. Back in the 90s, I lost it. And that was heartbreaking to me. And I got a hold of his friend, and his friend mailed me an original copy. Oh, wow. It, it was amazing. It, and it wasn't just the books. They, they were... They, the characters were all pre-generated, but they were on, like, cardstock, photocopied cardstock. They were, like, character cards. And I had cut mine all up so that they were easier to transport. And when he sent me the copy that he sent me, it was the original book with all the full-size cards. I'd also colored on mine with crayons and colored in all this because there were black and white line drawings of the superheroes and stuff. I am not too manly to admit that I, I shed a tear that day when it showed up in the mail. Um, it was a pretty amazing pretty amazing gift from someone um piece of my childhood oh yeah for sure that is a huge chunk of your memories right there it is yeah and then in then around 1983 i actually picked up again like i said superhero fan i picked up champions which is when champions came out uh for hero system uh, and that was the first kind of real solid flexible point by system game that i remember it was even pre-gurps if i remember correctly with a superhero system you have to be everything. So before it was like, well, you had Star Frontiers, that was science fiction, and it was a different system than D&D, even though TSR had written D&D as well. Then you had your, you know, your D&D fantasy, and then you had uh, whatever they had, Top Secret. I think that was TSR's spy game. So they were all different systems, Boot Hill, com, you know, Cowboys and stuff. But if you're running a superhero game, you're trying to create a superhero role-playing game you have to be everything i mean just look at the avengers right so you've got you got magic super spies powered armor assassins you know super soldiers like you have to run everything so to have a system that was a that allowed you to be able to create whatever you wanted was mind-blowing again for the industry back then and we played that forever fantasy hero played through a D second edition and then kind of weaned out of that because uh, other systems were more flexible at the time and then got back into third edition, um, like a lot of us did with the open gaming license and whatnot in the turn of the century. Sure, sure. It's, I think it's interesting that a lot of gamers who have been in the hobby for a long time have a very similar story of they get that first taste of gaming with an old school Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Then they their experiences expand and grow a little bit, and they latch on to one or two other systems or style of games. But eventually, they always complete that circuit and come back to D&D at some point. <laughs> it it's just such like an it, right? iconic foundation of, of yeah. our lives. It, it shapes everything we have done, yeah. <laughs> whether we admit it or not. I, I you know, as a, as a designer, you're constantly in conversations at some point in time about the benefits of class-based systems versus point-by systems versus skill-based systems. You know what I mean? That, that there's always like people hate the class-based system because they don't think they can do anything that they that what they what they really want to do. But they all have it. I've never been one much of a I like this and not that. I just want to play everything. They all have their advantages and disadvantages. Um, fifth edition D and D is a class-based system. Super easy to teach. Real straightforward. They trimmed up all the math. It's a great system. Um, fourth, I taught a bunch of people how to play D and D on fourth, and that's kind of the system that they know of. And they were a little bit more on the wargamer front, so it worked out really well with them. But uh, it was we were also playing with great role players who had been you know gaming for decades, so they got to see that part of it too. I believe a really really good game is ninety percent the people around the table and ten percent the system, maybe eighty twenty. I played. If you did, you ever play the game Chill? No, I have not. 
super simple horror-like game, right? The, the mechanics were not super complicated. One of the most horrific game nights around the table I've ever played <laughs> was a game of chill that I will never, ever forget. Okay. Um, but that was because the, the, the guy who was running the game, um, Mike Nagel, he does a, he's, a, he's a writer and a script writer and does you know film and movie stuff. So he really knows how to tell a story. And be cinematic and really pull you into it. We would often mix and match um, kind of almost like LARPing, really. So in this particular scenario, we were going to a an insane asylum to interview this priest who was in a cell. So what we did was is he went out on the back deck. We had a sliding glass door. We pretended the porch was the padded cell. He sat down with his arms across him like he was in a like he was in a straitjacket. I went into the room, we closed the sliding glass door, and my two partners uh, my friends Ben and Matt were out, were acting as if they were looking through a tiny little porthole, like in the door, watching me, and they couldn't hear anything that we were saying. And so I was talking to him. He was getting super creepy. I turned around to leave, and he told me, "Okay, stop moving. You're paralyzed." So now I'm standing there, staring at my buddies who are looking through the porthole, and he's not telling me what he's doing behind me. But all I could see were my friends' faces becoming horrified at whatever was going on behind me and they couldn't hear him so he wasn't describing anything and i'm like what is he doing back there like their faces they were all run but i couldn't hear them at all it was oh it was horrifying and then he started describing like there's like the lick of flames behind me and flickering flame light coming off of the off the padded walls and i was like oh my god i get chills just thinking about it it was genius but again the system was super simple. It allowed the flexibility. I think there is some, there is definitely something to be said about a good system can feed into the story. Like a good system can teach people how to tell these stories. Absolutely. And I know that after listening to your spot on the Dungeon Master's Block, I know that you're definitely a, a crunch fan, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, sure. And so I, I get, I, I love it when mechanics can help to inform the role playing in the story. Absolutely. Having said that, I've played twerp. Do you know twerps? Have you ever heard of twerps? Yeah, definitely. Twerps was a twerp, twerps was a different ga- a little game that the the world's easiest role playing system has one stat and little like stick figure guys that Jeff D the old the artist from D and D created. I played twerps games that were awesome, and there's one stat. So not that the system is irrelevant, but you can play really really good games if you have the great GM and the great players, you know, at the table. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, as much of a crunch guy and tactical combat player that I come from in my background, uh, within the past couple years, uh, specifically while I've been doing this show, I've definitely grown to realize the importance of a great narrative story, of cooperative storytelling. Yeah. And I, I really find myself evolving more towards those very rules light interpretive heavy games. Yeah. Which is so atypical for me, but we end up having so much more fun at the table. No, I hear you. I have a, a very dear friend of mine, Doug Easterly. Um, that guy's like a gaming historian. I just adore him, and he's got this chock full of knowledge and an incredible library of, of old, obscure role playing games. As many rules as in systems as that man knows, hundreds of systems, I would guess, he is an enormous fan of Super System Light. He really enjoys Fate. He's liking Fifth Edition a lot. It's much more fluid. You can really kind of get you really get that first and not to be a commercial for fifth, but like the first and second edition days back in the day was really mind's eye theater and really enjoyable stuff that you can just roll with. 
third had freaking great balance and super inspiring stuff based on the crunch um, and game balance that they really needed in first and second. Uh, every different XP chart for every class. What? What? Anyway, in third edition, one XP chart. Wonderful. Amazing thing they did there. So anyway, and third, and even fourth had some great mechanics that they ended up folding into fifth that people don't... It's funny, people were complaining about them in fourth, and then they have it in fifth, and they renamed it and reskinned it, and people are saying that it's amazing. So, uh, whatever. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> fifth has all those things. We can go back to being as simple or complex as you like, and I really like that flexibility. But there are some amazing systems out there. Numenera and The Strange from Monty Cook Games tons of fun on those games and they do things that help the mechanics kind of inform the role playing as well their xp mechanic is really interesting where if you uh if you do something you you get two xp you keep one and you give one of the xp to a co-player right Mm -hmm. as a reward for something that they've done and tell them something they've done really well if the gm wants to do like an intervention of some sort and do something crazy he hadn't written down then you get the xp right Mm-hmm. Or you can you can spend an XP to stop that from happening, but you don't get the XP for it having happened. Blah blah blah. So it, it's really it's really interactive storytelling between the two. And I hear fates like that too. I actually haven't read Fate yet, but um, I get people telling me all kinds of stuff about it. And it looks like these guys have been playing for a really long time, and they've all used a lot of the mechanics that we've all house ruled at the table. And the stuff that bugged them is the same stuff that bugged us. And it looks like they put that into a game that people are really enjoying. Um, the, the one downside of Fate, though, is kind of the opposite of the heavy crunch games, is that it's a pretty open-ended game. So um, I, as a writer, as a prose writer, I believe restriction kind of helps motivate imagination. If you tell me I can write a story about anything that I want, I, it may never get written because it's too open. If you tell me you have an ogre and you have a minotaur and you have a little girl and they have to go uh, to the bottom of this, uh, the deepest lake in the world oh, well, now I've got a whole bunch of ideas that crop up in my head about what I can do and how I can do it, right? With Fate, it's pretty open-ended, so if you have a strong vision of a character, that's great, but with new players, that might be a little tough because they don't really kind of know what the limits are. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. Um, I am a huge fan of Fate. Uh, We have done a lot with it uh, on this show. Uh, We've rambled on Mm -hmm. about it at length, uh, about how much we love it. Um, But you're absolutely right. A, A system that is absolutely boundless can pose its own problems because you don't know where to start. Exactly. And I specifically remember a time when I was teaching fate, actually Faye, uh, to a brand new group of players. And I made the mistake of just saying, all right, you can do anything you want. What do you want to be? <laughs> right. And they just stared at me. There was just blank stares for about five minutes while we debated what type of characters and world we wanted to create. Yeah. And with, with champions in the hero system, that was often my issue as well, even though that is arguably a very crunch game. Cause it's tons. Of, I mean, I still do math in my head the way I learned how to multiply and divide fractions, making characters and champions. Right. So it's a pretty crunch heavy game, but having said that it has that same fate issue, which is we were playing a superhero game. You can play anything you want. What do you want? And then I just get blank spa- blank stares, right? Mm-hmm. So they typically, you don't teach people how to create characters and champions to start off with. That's just intimidating. You just say, tell me what you want to play. Let's talk it out and I will create it for you. Right. And tell you where the limits are. And then what I typically found happened, because I did this for, I don't know, champions was, hero system in general was my system of choice for a solid 15 years. 
And I tell a lot of people that game. And I knew people who hated, hated, hated math. Absolutely hated math. And they would play, like, one character in Champions, and then they would immediately want to run a game and make 15 characters and do all the math themselves. <laughs> and things like that, that experience right there, is the reason why I have a website that's called GamesChangeLives.com. Uh, I am a huge fan of gaming with kids. I know how much it changed my life being a kid, not just doing the math, even if it's simple math, just rolling the dice and adding the dice together. There was an episode of Acquisitions Incorporated that I was watching. Chris Perkins was running uh, the guys from you know PAX and uh, Scott from PvP. So running their game, right? And and they're rolling like 66 or something. And Scott Perkins is just, uh, he's just calculating all the numbers really quick, right? Scott Kurtz was like, what? Wait, I don't, I, how are you doing this so quickly, right? And it's a given when you've been doing it since you're a little kid, adding these numbers together. So from something as simple as just adding dice to what role playings did for us when we were kids. If I want to run a science fiction game, I need to read. If I want to run a politics game or a super spy game, I need to know how forensics works and I need to know how mythology works and I need to know how religion works and politics and travel and I need to know countries and capitals. There was nothing in my childhood that got me reading more than one, my dad, who's a voracious reader, and two, playing these role-playing games. And when I was growing up in the South, it, we had a lot of issues with people saying that D&D was a problem for kids. And it was so frustrating for me as a kid because I had I was felt very powerless in trying to defend this thing that was so amazing to me. And then as adult looking back on it, thinking that these are the things that our teachers are asking us to do at, at school. What do you want me to do? You want me to do math and you want me to read more and you want me to write? Then how about we just sit around and play this game? Because let me tell you about the stuff I read this weekend, right? About, you know, real world religion around the world and how the Hindu myths work and you know what I mean? Like, all of this stuff is so inspiring. My wife was uh, doing her GRE, and she kept asking me just random words, right? She was like, hey, do you know what a dirge is? I'm like, oh, well, yeah, of course I do, yeah. Or she's like, did you know that enervate and innervate are two different things? I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. She'd be like, how do you know all this stuff? And I'm like, well, those three things happen to be D&D spells. So pretty much every time you ask me, how do you know that? The answer is gaming. She doesn't even ask me anymore. So... That is why games change lives, and that is why I'm so adamant about playing them with my kids and finding great games to play with kids and inspire their imaginations, because if they're having fun, they the, the educational part of it is just going to happen. I went on a bit of a ramble on that subject, but I'm clearly passionate about it, so... Hey. That's fine, Rich. We are not opposed to tangents and rambles here on the RPG Academy. Um, so uh, feel free to ramble off wherever <laughs> your ideas take you. Um, I, I think it's great, though, that you kind of transitioned over into uh, what you're doing now, specifically with uh, with the kids and stuff and how great that is for yeah. education and development mm -hmm. and encouraging creativity. Um Michael has has two younger boys, so he is uh, preparing to usher them into this world, uh, and he's getting a lot of advice from uh, another member of our network, RPG Gamer Dad. Oh, I love that guy. I just started talking to him. I'm going to be running an actual play one-shot for him and Lou, Lou Anders, the writer Lou Anders, who is a genius, uh, and then Christopher West and his wife Angela West. If you don't know Chris West... He is a cartographer, uh, mapsofmastery.com, but he did all of the cartography for Numenera, 
Uh, he's an any award-winning cartographer. He did the Maps of Mystery for the Dungeons & Dragons for Dragon Magazine for years. And he's also accredited for doing the official interior layout of the Millennium Falcon. Apparently they had uh, 20 different interior layouts of the Falcon and none of them made sense from various like extended universe stuff. And they handed it to him and they said, you need to make this make sense and we're going to make it canon. And he was like, um, yeah, I'm totally going to do that. <laughs> uh, and he did. And they, they published it, I think it was in a polyhedron magazine uh, back, uh, I think it might have been the um, West End Games uh, Star Wars back then, I'm not sure. Or maybe it might have been D20. Anyway, we're going to be doing, a, we're gonna be doing a, an aquatic, uh, aquatic campaign one shot Cool on RPG Gamer Dad. Cool. His kids are adorable. Oh, I know. And they they love getting into the games. I mean, obviously, they're yeah. still pretty young, and he has to lead them at times and encourage them to participate in the right way. But very clearly, uh, he is demonstrating how gaming with kids is, first off, possible. Right. And second off, very important to childhood learning and development yeah. uh, and the growth of this next generation of people that we have here. Absolutely. So so why don't we uh, switch our focus back a little bit to what you are doing right now, Rich? Um, we, we've mentioned a couple different websites that you are prominently featured on. Uh, so why don't we talk about them and your projects and kind of what you're what you are doing here in the hobby right now. Yeah, absolutely. My own website is uh, richhowardauthor.com. I started that a few years ago. It was just trying to get some stuff up. Just a personal, I have a personal blog. I do some game reviews, some some movie TV reviews. Uh, and then I have gameschangelives.com, uh, which I've done some uh, board game reviews for kids and, and posted some, some a variety of different articles. Well, what ended up happening was Sean from Tribality had picked up, I'd done a bunch of 5th edition race conversions. And so when 5th edition came out, I was already doing freelance work for Rogue Genius Games and um, Christina Styles pre Presents and Misfit Studios. And so when the 5th edition came out and, and I just got in incredibly inspired by it, I was talking to a lot of the people I know and there was just no, no open gaming license coming out. And everybody else was sitting on their stuff and they're like, well, we're, we're doing some stuff, but we're going to sit on it until we get an OGL. And I'm like, I can't. I can't just sit on this stuff. I, I just can't. So... I started posting it all on Games Change Lives, and uh, Sean from Tribality, which had only been up a few months, I think, uh, at the time, he actually uh, popped over and asked if I wanted to do a, a guest post for them, a post that was called um, The Writer's Guide to Roleplaying, and I was talking about um, developing character, character development at the table. So basically a lot of... I touched on a lot of things that we talked about in um, the Dungeon Masters block. I was asked to be a guest over there, and we did one that, uh, uh, episode that was just for the players. And it, it was a lot of stuff that I talked about there, where instead of picturing your character when you first start at first level of what the person is, I think Mitch said this very, very well over there at DM, DM's block, people come to the table saying, this is who my character is, but they don't pay attention to or don't allow for the opportunity of who will this character become. So they're like, I want to play Batman, but Batman's 20th level and I can't be Batman, so I'm going to be first level and I'm going to do my Excel spreadsheet to get my character to where I want him to be at 20th level and the playing of the game is just the venue for me to be able to get to the character I want to have happen. But that doesn't... The, the character that becomes Batman had experiences... <laughs> in his career that made him be that person and allowing the game to take you to, to places you wouldn't have thought of for that character can be uh, can be amazing so i wrote this blog talking about that and it did extremely extremely well for the site 
I'm honored to say. So uh, they just asked if I want to do some regular columns. So I have two columns over there now. One's called From the Depths. I have a degree in marine biology, and so aquatic campaign settings are a fascination for me, and I have made it my goal in my gaming career to bring the beauty and mystery and incredible space of underwater games to more tables. So that's part of what I do, and I do that. I use uh, From the Depths for that. And so you'll get a taste of that over at RPG Gamer Dev when we do that actual play podcast. Hopefully people get an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, I also, on the Dungeon Masters block, I've done two uh, pods for them on aquatic gaming. One of them is coming out on the f- June 15th of this month. Uh, the other one came out, I think, in February. Um, it, the first one was so well-received that they asked me to come back and talk about the flood of questions we were getting. Uh, the other column is called Rich's Game Room, and it's just a catch-all. It's basically house rules. Um, I ran uh, six levels of... Paizo's Emerald Spire, but I converted it to 5th edition. And so it's it's like I take that, those notes for new monsters, traps, equipment, magic items, whatever, and I put that, just my house, my house rule notes up there, so hopefully people will, um, hopefully people will take those and be inspired by them, and not feel like I'm somehow telling them this is the way that this has to be. Uh, there's a, a design reaction sometimes. Some of the fans, the majority of our fans are amazing. And they're like, hey, did you think about this? Did you think about that? And I love getting in a dialogue about how this can be a better build. And then some people are maybe a little less polite. And they just tell you that you're wrong. And there is no way to do this. And you're just wrong. And I was having a conversation with J.M. JM Perkins, who, who does uh, survivalist gaming, the column over at Tribality. He's a good friend of mine. And that guy's a genius. Just read everything that he's done. We were talking about it, and he was presenting to me, because he only started gaming a few years ago, and he was telling me about this idea that he had in his head, where those of us who grew up pre-video games, we had tabletop gaming, and if we didn't like something about a class, or a race, or a magic item, you just changed it. But there's a huge generation of gamers who are coming to tabletop gaming, who were only experiencing games through video games. And if you're playing World of Warcraft, and they nerf your paladin on (laughs) on an update, you can't just change it, right? You just say paladins suck i'm gonna go play a cleric or whatever and i think that um that idea that almost mental training sometimes can come to a table some of us older gamers we're like we can talk about the theory of the game design behind why we like or not like how the how this particular piece of rule was designed but we don't tend to complain about it as much because we'll just go change it (laughs) at our table we'll just do it differently anyway we're gonna do it however we want to do it anyway um but the theory is definitely an an important part of talking about making sure the the balance is there but it was an interesting idea that he brought up to me and i've been talking to some other people about it to see people that are in the younger generation of gamers if that's a truth hypothesis or not like when when did you start gaming i started gaming in my early 20s so i've i only have about 12 13 years under my belt okay i started gaming with dungeons and dragons with uh second edition um but then we had pretty soon after that jumped over to the three point zero at that time okay. variation so so I, that's where my background of, of crunch heavy and liking all those numbers mm. and everything comes from because that's what i learned but i think you're absolutely right even in, in even with my younger age the the people that are around my age that i've grown up with that i've played with for a long time we have the ability to look at the class, look at the mechanics, look at the rules, understand them and appreciate them for what they are, and then just do whatever we want with it. saying, okay, well, this is what it means. This is what its intention is. However, in our specific situation, 
we are trying to do something that's a little bit different. So for us in this moment, we're going to adjust. We're going to do this and that. Yeah. But uh, I think I, I think the the fulcrum the, the of this theory is fourth edition. Yeah. Uh, because fourth edition, when it came out, that brought in so many new players to the hobby that yes. had never played Dungeons and Dragons, maybe never right. even played any role playing game. Uh, but fourth edition right. was so well marketed and was so appealing to the masses of that younger crowd, of that video game crowd. Um, so much with uh, the Penny Arcade guys and Acquisitions Inc. Uh, just did monumental work to bring people to the hobby. And I think that's where we mm -hmm. started seeing this new generation of player that was more focused on, well, here's what the rules say, and this is what it is, and this is what we have to do. And I, I think the bottom line of all of this is that there's nothing wrong with either theory. There's nothing wrong with either way to approach the hobby. Right. I, I would not argue with that at all. Um, I think you're. I think you're right. We we talk a lot about everybody in um that for the players Dungeon Masters block episode. We talked about how everybody comes to the table for a different reason, and sometimes we forget as players that how I have fun is different how somebody else has fun. And so like, all right, so I'm a, I'm an actor and storyteller and I'm talking to the merchant and you know, the war gamers are getting frustrated because I'm spending 15 minutes talking to a dude who didn't even have a name or, and then vice versa. We have a game where it's just mechanic, 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 mechanic combat. And I'm playing a character who certainly can keep up with the combats, but I have some role playing I want to do and I can't get any of it because they just say like, okay, well that's fine. And we move on to more fighting. Right. But we all, if we can all understand that, yes, there is a diff everybody has a different way of having fun at the table. And we, we learn to respect that and encourage other people's way to play. Then they will encourage our way to play. And then we can all be having a great time. Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, I think the best part about the, the role-playing game hobby is that it really does cater to everyone with every play style. Yeah, I agree. There's no way that you could say, you know what, I can't do what I want in this game. Yeah. There, there's no way that you can say there's nothing that lets me play the way I want to play. Yeah. There's always another game on the horizon. Yes. And there's always a house rule that you can create and adapt. Yes. The hobby, the, the content of the hobby is so fluid and adaptable that... Right. As long as you're willing to be flexible and work and think creatively, you can do anything you want. Yep. And that's what makes it so fun. Right. That's where I get the most enjoyment out of gaming from. Absolutely. I love me some video games. Oh, sure. Don't get me wrong. Particularly, I played WoW for years and years. If I talk to somebody who's also gone through Expedition to the Barrier Peaks or the Isle of Dread module from back in the day... We have an immediate shared experience, even though we hadn't sit, sat down at the gaming table to play together. There's just certain groups of individuals, I think, that are drawn to role-playing, and that's expanding drastically, which is awesome. But we all seem to have similar likes and dislikes, right? Mm -hmm. And they all tend to be the most intelligent and creative people that I've ever run into. Um, they're either because they were drawn to games because they were already like that, or they started playing games when they were kids and they were given an environment to train themselves to use their imagination as a more of a tool so when i moved i went to the local game store which is a, a place called comic quest when i was new in town i'd run a game for people because i always knew that everybody would rather play than run in most cases not in yep. most cases people love to run 
and I love to run. I have to run at some point. But usually you appreciate getting that break. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And so I came in and offered to run a game of whatever, and uh, they ended up wanting to play champions. And uh, I've known those guys for 25 plus years now, and a lot of them went to go work in like telemarketing for Blizzard way back in the old StarCraft like, you know, real-time strategy World of Warcraft days. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of went through the ranks, and now they were all class and quest designers and stuff on WoW, which was a pretty awesome thing to see. So I felt like WoW was almost designed for me (laughs) because (laughs) a lot of the things we complained about around the table were folded in. Like, my friend uh, Kevin and I were always complaining about how video games didn't have enough shape-changing and enough pets because we were both Druid and Ranger fanatics. And uh, then, of course, I pop open Warcraft and I'm like, holy cow, I can have pets and shape change. This thing is awesome. I love, thank you, Kevin. Uh, I don't know exactly how much direct input he had on that, but still that was my illusion. So, but, so I loved WoW and it was great that I didn't have, I could play and not have to have somebody run. But after a while you get to the point where you're like, well, I want to do a little more. I want to do more in-depth stuff. I want to play a character. And even on the, the boards that were role-playing focused, it was still just wasn't the same. You don't get that same face-to-face acting interaction, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And so uh, video games, love them. But um, definitely I'm always going to come back to tabletop. Video games aren't going to kill tabletop for me for sure. No, I I don't think that the hobbies will ever wipe each other out because uh, as you get into one, you turn to the other as inspiration, as a break, as as a place to escape to. Uh, they exist very much hand in hand uh, in the in the current day and age, and I think with the way that tabletop gaming and video game technologies are evolving, we are eventually going to see more of a direct crossover and relation to them. Mm-hmm. The technologies are going to become more intertwined and combined as we go forward. I agree. I think the the mindset is still going to be the same mm-hmm. when you are that type of creative performing theatrical person you want to sit around the table with your family and your friends and and you want to have that awesome social gaming storytelling experience but Mm -hmm. sometimes you need a break and then you're gonna hop in a video game and just veg out for a little bit um and then something's gonna happen in that video game and you say oh my god I have to bring this to the table. This was such a cool yeah. cinematic dynamic moment. I want to make this right. happen with my yeah. pe- with my people at the table. So, and, and that's what happens in prose writing, right? They, it's a pretty classic thing. If you want to be a better writer, what do you do? You read everything. You watch your, watch movies, watch TV. You you read. You read comics. You read novels. You read freaking newspaper scripts. You read anything and everything you can get your hands on. It's the same thing when you're running a game, right? Take all those experiences, right? Find the inspirations for uh, for for doing something. In the Aquatic Pod, we were talking about there's a there was a an Aquaman storyline about San Diego had gotten destroyed uh, along a fault line and pulled into the ocean, and 99% of the people in San Diego died, but 1% of the people found out that they could breathe water and only underwater now, and they didn't know why. And so we're, I was talking about taking that idea and folding it into your fantasy game, right? Having Aboleth decide that they, you know, they have these genetic strains of slaves from back in the day that they know have seeded across the coasts of your, you know, home country, fill in the blank name, and they're pulling these into the oceans, not only destroying the coasts, 
but uh, to remove things like food supplies and things from the surface if they want to attack them, but also getting people that, that are going to be their permanent slaves, right? So getting your inspiration across genres is, is incredible, and, and video games are so beautifully done these days with such fruit mass effect, amazing, interactive storyline. Oh my gosh, right? Mm-hmm. Tons of inspiration from there you can get for any game you're running, whether it's fantasy or sci-fi. It's great stuff. Oh, absolutely. And you don't have to you don't have to do one or the other. Oh yeah. Uh, what what I've learned in in my time gaming, running games, writing prose, that being just being creative in general uh, you can find little tiny bits of inspiration in anything I, I could i could be watching a procedural cop drama and just pluck out one little scene from that show that sparks interest to the fantasy project that i'm working on absolutely ideas are always going to happen and the genre that they happen in are not important you're looking at the content at the topics right and i think that's why uh, a site like Tribality is so cool Thanks. because yeah. um, the the content, the information, the experiences that everyone shares, you can just take that, read it, use it, transition it right into your own games. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Well, a lot of us had our own websites, right, um, before mm-hmm. we started doing stuff there. And some of us still do. I technically still have my Games Change Live website, but I haven't been doing much with it because... I'm doing two weekly columns plus sometimes a third and interviews and other stuff. And honestly, it just it gets more traffic over there. And it gets more traffic for very good reason. And that's because if you're coming to read my stuff, you're going to end up finding stuff like Brandis's History of the Classes, which is freaking awesome. That, that whole series is amazing, right? Yeah. So yeah. you're going to find stuff that Sean writes or that Ben writes or me or, or, or John or whoever – and you're going to find all kinds of stuff, right? And I love that idea. This this collective DMing website is a, really appealing to me. And um, I don't see it happen very often. We all have our own little websites. And you kind of post some things out on some Facebook group, hoping that somebody picks up on it and likes it. But it's hard for us to get that kind of wider audience. And uh, I like the idea that if people wanted to come to my website, they probably are already interested in aquatic games. But if they're going to Tribality to read John's crazy horror stuff and they stumble across something about like, you know, oh, a bunch of aquatic encounter ideas for first to fifth level. Let me read them. If they're interesting, maybe I'll throw an encounter into my game you know what i mean much more Mm -hmm. likely to be able to do that and uh and i love that idea and sean's doing a great job with the site amazing job with the site oh i i can uh, uh, speak from real life personal experience (laughs) uh when you go to tribality uh you click on one thing and then you just fall down the rabbit hole (laughs) of everything else um because uh, i i swung over there to read some of your articles prepping for today and maybe something else that's going to happen down the road, foreshadowing Thunder Crash <laughs> teaser. Um, and then I stumbled across the the history of the classes one. Oh yeah, that stream of articles, and I just got lost. Yeah. I, I, so I've been spending so much time of my vacation here just reading <laughs> articles over there. I love it. But it's fun. It, it's. It's great to read what other people are doing in the hobby and the industry, and it's great to just share our life experiences with each other and gaming experiences and the little bits and pieces you pick up, whether it fits into a game you're working on, whether it fits into another project, whether it sparks inspiration for something else. That's what's so cool about this hobby, that all these people from these different walks of life, I mean, I'm younger than you. 
I'm in retail as a manager. Right. You are a marine biologist. <laughs> and... Actually, well, no, to clarify, I have a degree in marine biology, but by my, my secret identity day job, I'm actually a critical care nurse. Oh, okay. So I, I went from marine biology. I worked in the veterinary field. I was a veterinary nurse for 10 years and then um, had my own business for 10. And then now I went back to school and I do critical care nursing. So that all that medicine experience and and uh, animal work experience all kind of still feeds into my gaming and writing. Oh, for sure, and I I think that just goes to prove my point even further. So, <laughs> you, you and I would have zero reason to interact in the in real life. <laughs> yes, if maybe yeah, <laughs> beyond the fact that we're on different sides of the country, right. our backgrounds professionally and educationally don't cross over. There is no Venn diagram where we overlap, but. But because right. we share this hobby and this passion for uh, creation and storytelling, yeah. it, we can sit here and have a conversation. I mean, peek behind the curtain, guys. Uh, Rich and I have like a 50-thread email going on <laughs> about things that we have been working on just in the past couple days leading yep. up to this interview. Yes. And it, it's so cool to be able to meet new people, interact with these people, and just uncover this really cool dynamic relationship that we all have yeah. because of role-playing games. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a, such a great way to connect with everybody. It is. And, and, and you know, I've been playing for almost... 40 years, but my wife and I have been together about 10 years, and she had, even though I'd been doing a little writing here and there, she, as any good partner will do, will point out the things that you say you want to do but aren't doing, and then call you on it. And so she did. She was like, you're playing a lot of WoW. What happened to all that writing you keep talking about? And I was like, ouch. Oh, man, she's right. Oh, I hate it when she's right. And uh, so I I decided to, uh, I started uh, brainstorming some ideas for novels, um, over the next few years, I decided to get serious, and I went to conferences here in San Diego, a bunch of writers' conferences. We have some great ones. I uh, went to World Fantasy, just started doing a ton of stuff, finished my first novel, um, which took a long time, but it was a great learning experience. And then I met James Sutter, who's uh, one of the editors at Paizo at um, World Fantasy, because there's a lot of writers, but also gamers cross over into World Fantasy uh, conventions, and James is a writer as well, a great writer, um, for that matter. You should read his his Pathfinder stuff. So I was talking to him, and it, it just like, dawned on me that, wait, I've just spent all this time working on how to be a better prose writer for novel writing, and I've got decades of gaming experience. Could I do this? It was almost something that I wanted so badly that I didn't want to admit to myself that I wanted it that badly because I didn't want somebody to tell me I'm terrible at it. I decided to start working on doing that and I got into meeting um, Christina Stiles and some other designers doing some freelance work for them. And that's kind of come to where I'm at now, but that's only happened over the last two or three years or so. I've been co-writer and developer on a bunch of projects. I did a, a project for Owen Stevens at Rogue Genius Games um, with uh, one of the Paizo superstars, uh, Mike Wellham. And he and I did a thing called Story Feats. And there were Story Feats that were introduced in Ultimate Campaign. Things you like get a bonus, but then if you go through this particular story arc uh, from the feat, then it opens up a second tier of the feat. Hmm. And we, went to, we got together and did 50 more story feats. Owen was like, I had this great idea, but nobody wants to take it. And I was like, I'll take it. And basically I was at that point where I'm like, I don't care what you, what job you have, I will take it and I will make it as good as I can do. Right. Mm -hmm. So he was like, Oh, story feats. Oh, that sounds right up your alley. I ended up, uh, I ended up working on this project with a Paizo superstar winner only because I just took whatever was presented to me and did everything I could to make it as good as I could. 
Sure. Yeah, Mike Willem is great to work with, too, the Paizo Superstar guy. That guy is really smart. Go read his stuff, too. I'm just going to tell you to go read a bunch of people's stuff. <laughs> go read his stuff. Um, but there was a Neil Gaiman, uh, the author Neil Gaiman, did this really cool uh, speech to a graduating class. And one of the things he said was that was awesome. He said, if you're going to succeed in the writing industry or any industry, then you need to have three things. Have you Did you hear this speech? I have heard the speech, yeah. So he said, you need to do good work, you need to present your work on time, and you have to be a person that people want to work with. And then he stopped and he said, actually, you only need two out of any three of those, and you're fine. So you can do really good work and get everything in on time and be a terrible, terrible person nobody likes. Or (laughs) you can be a super nice person, you can get everything in on time, and your work can just be okay. Or you can do really great work. And you can be a really, really nice person, and you can come in three months late on your deadline, right? And I was like, oh my god, my mind just blew up, right? Yep. So if you can try and be somebody that people want to work with on a regular basis, be nice, be kind, be generous with your praise of other people's stuff. Genuinely, not let's make stuff up and sound ingenuine, but if you like somebody's stuff, talk about it right? That's going to make them say thank you and want to be around you as a person, which helps when you're trying to find work and freelance, right? Mm -hmm. Do your best to get stuff on time. We all know in the publishing industry, stuff happens, man. I had a child. So I was, I was two days late on something I wanted to, I was doing for, you know, Wolfgang Bauer, but two days late on a, on a deadline for Wolfgang for him felt like two months early, right? (laughs) So I was doing my best to get on time before I knew I was going to be sleep deprived for a month, right? Right. Um, and then hopefully do the best work you can. And you can't do anything about that. All you can do about that is, particularly in game design, read stuff about game design and just do it. Just write it, right? Put it out there. Have people give you critiques. Try to ignore the people who are rude about it. And try and pay attention to the people who are really trying to have a dialogue with you, right? Yep. People who are really rude, which happens sometimes, sometimes also have really, really good points. But it's not worth it for me to take the energy of them being rude. I'd rather hear that really, really good point from somebody who's interested in having a multiple exchange dialogue about how I can really make this better right? and where their experiences help me. That makes me excited. Mm-hmm. I love having those kind of dialogues on my own work. Because there's things I don't, I mean, God, I mean, I feel like I know the 5th edition system so well, but I, I'm people pointed stuff out to me. What was it? Somebody did recently, they were like, oh, jack of all trades for bards adds to initiative checks. I was like, no, it, that only adds to stat, the ability checks. And then I went back to read the rules and technically initiative is considered an ability check, a dex ability check. And I was like, first of all, I was like, well, that's, I think it's crap because dexterity is all, is already the god stat in D&D, so I don't think it's a big deal to separate initiative out from dexterity. Second of all, I did a whole blog post on how I think dexterity is way overpowered in fifth, and you should take that, that the, the speed at which you draw your gun is less relevant to your initiative as your situational awareness meaning your wisdom or perception. So I make, an, I make a debate that at our table we use wisdom instead, which allows some more balance. Like if you want a fighter who's super fast or rogue that's really fast, then you may want to spread out your stats a little bit. Have somebody be a little wise instead of using wisdom as a dump stat. But um, yeah, so there you go. Those are That's my advice on, on doing game design stuff. And, and we're living in the modern world, man. Just post your stuff up. Somebody will love it. Yeah. And if, if, if other people are doing the same thing I do, which is like, I find stuff, I just posted a, my favorite things in May and I'm going to start doing this every month because so much cool stuff comes by my desk and I post it up on social media, but I want people to see this stuff, right? I wanted people to go and, and say like, oh, I'm going to look up all of Rich's favorite things for 2015 and see what I missed. Mm-hmm. See if there's something that clicks with me. 
And it's not just game design stuff. There was there's an anthology uh, that's coming out from Mark Tassin, who has a ridiculous, absurd list of talent on this anthology, this Kickstarter. And some of it is gaming stuff, like No Thank You Evil, which is the new thing from um, from Monty Cook Games. That's specifically for gaming with kids. Like you can't get me more excited about it than that. So yeah, I want people to see the stuff that other people are doing. It's amazing. My stuff, I, I'm, I'm stoked. People love my stuff. That's great. I'm super happy about that, of course. But there are a lot of people doing amazing stuff in this industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some of it deserves more viral praise than it may be getting. Yeah, we are definitely entering an era where the gaming hobby is exploding with player content whether it's just people putting stuff on forums whether it's people making that jump to being an independent game designer and looking to crowdfunding there there is no shortage of new people doing new things in the industry mm-hmm. uh so mm-hmm. being able to find these people can be a challenge at times yeah absolutely. Uh, uh, i mean I talked about falling down the tribality rabbit hole. Uh, you can fall down the Kickstarter rabbit hole just yeah, just by clicking through the gaming section alone. I try to not do that yeah, too much. Yeah, it, it can get nasty, and then you run out of money. <laughs> but, um, yeah, ha- having a, a, a website to go to, a resource to go to, just to talk about this stuff, even if someone doesn't end up pledging to a Kickstarter or a Patreon or something, just talking about it and creating some groundswell and having a dialogue about it, that's always so important just to keep ideas flowing, to keep the exchange of information happening. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGAcademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening, and as always, if you're having fun. Thank you.
you're doing it right.